0: the days of internet and in YouTube, we was after Bruin, Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude. And Jake would be the brief the way he's playing with snakes. Enthusiasts of highest taste was always trading some tapes. Dusty said it cold to let me know about hard times. And Randy be the cream and he was reaching for new heights. Flair was always going and Andre was so imposing. Doesn't matter if nobody can seem to beat Hulk Hogan. Turnbuckles and territories. we be stuck to screams in the 1980s. And we came faith and made them believe. By the turnbuckles and territories. Turn- Territory.
1: Welcome back to Turnbuckles and Territories, the Gen X grown-up wrestling podcast all about the greatest era of professional wrestling. With me as always today is Barry.
2: George, always a pleasure, man.
1: And you know that Captain Kiwi is here.
3: I'm rocking the guitar today.
1: (laughs) Wrestling and music go hand-in-hand, but that relationship reached new heights in the early 1980s. Today, we do a deep dive off the top rope on WWF's Rockin' Wrestling
2: Era era. It's time to grab them cakes. That's all I gotta (laughs) say.
1: (laughs) This is a time when WWF kind of really flipped the script on professional wrestling. Yes. You end up with a lot of different things all associated with this era. You ended up with the wrestling and the rock and roll stuff that we're going to get into here shortly. You also ended up with some of the cartoon era of WWF, right? With the Saturday morning stuff and how that was kind of fed by the storylines that were going on in professional wrestling and even Hollywood movies kind of played a part in
2: this era of
1: professional wrestling.
2: This really started, a lot of people like to say, the legitimacy of wrestling. The the making it okay for everyone to enjoy wrestling. And yeah, in a bringing way, it to the masses. Exactly. The mainstream. Yeah. And that's, again, love him or hate him. This is something Vince McMahon did very well, was know how to read the, he read the room. And he saw how the world was changing and saw how big of an impact involving celebrities would be with wrestling. And it just so happens that the celebrities that he started off with were rock stars.
3: With MTV just just launching.
2: Yeah. It's kind of a no brainer. Yeah. I mean, and it worked. It was a perfect combination of the aggressive silliness that was wrestling and the aggressive silliness that was rock and roll. (laughs)
1: Right. (laughs) He definitely gave us something that nobody expected. And I think it's, we might as well just jump right into the heart of the matter right after this break and talk about how it all got started. Inside a cage, Jerry Lawler faces
0: Austin Idol. No time, no disqualification, no stopping the match for anything. There must be a winner with Lawler's hair at stake against Idol's hair. And get this, Idol says that he will beat the king, shave his head, or he'll personally guarantee that you get your money back. Idol loses, his hair goes, and you get a free night of wrestling. Lawler loses, and the king goes bald. History in the making, tickets of $1, and you may get it back.
1: I know without a doubt that Barry and Captain Kiwi have far more knowledge on the (laughs) WWF wrestling rocking all the craziness that happened during the mid 80s era than I do because I was primarily watching NWA, WCW, Florida Championship Wrestling, the Southern Wrestling Group. And we didn't really get a lot of WWF programming here in North Florida at the time because this was back during the days when there weren't a ton of cable channels that broadcast nationally at this point, TNT. Was just coming out, or had been out for a little while. I mean, TBS, of course, a superstation, had been out for a period longer than that. But I did hear and watch WWF wrestling specifically. This was when Lou Albano, the famous manager with the little rubber bands pinned to his cheeks <laughs> and the <laughs> ponytail and all this <laughs> stuff. This is when he kind of started with Cindy Lauper, right, Barry?
2: Yeah, yeah. This all started with so. And and there's varying stories on this, but the one that most people accept as gospel was Lou Albano was on a trip to Puerto Rico just about the same time that Cindy Lauper was down there. And where they met, how they met, there's been multiple different accounts of it. The important thing is they met one another Mm. and they really hit it off. And Cindy hadn't really broken big just yet. And this was right around, I want to say like 80, late 82, early 83. She was in the process of making music video for a song called Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Rock. You may have heard of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think we, I think I've heard of it
3: and I know I've seen the damn video. That's where he played her father in the video, didn't he? Yes, and she
2: actually requested him to play her father in this video. And Lou had done, you know, obviously he'd been on television with wrestling and everything, but he hadn't really done any quote-unquote acting work. So this was kind of his first segue into actually doing legitimate acting.
1: Well, was he really acting, though? I mean, i watched that video. That was pretty (laughs) much him.
3: Well, no, you're not wrong. I wonder if this was one of the things that got him into playing Super or Mario on the Super Mario Brothers Super Show years God. later.
1: You know, I would not doubt if this didn't put his image in somebody's mind as <laughs> needing to be cast in that role.
2: As Mario Mario. Mm. Gosh. No, no, no. But, it's the super show, not the movie. No, no, no. It was his his name was Mario Mario and Luigi Mario. Yes. Part of the deal on it was though that if Vince allowed Lou to star in this video, then he got the brilliant idea of saying, Okay, well let's get Cindy Lauper on our television show as part of something called Piper's Pit. You now Piper's Pit was a it was kind of like a little vignette for lack of a better word that was hosted by Roddy Piper and they always had you know some type of a guest on there
1: it was a show within the show yeah that exactly. was very very popular in wrestling during the 80s where they would take a wrestler and give them a 2 to 5 minute segment during the wrestling show for them to promote a storyline but in a talk show
2: format so the whole segment was supposed to be albino turns on cindy lauper and refers to her as a quote-unquote broad Mm. which led her to go ahead and start beating the crap out of him with her purse (laughs) (laughs) but she then challenged him to a match between two female wrestlers of His choice. She would manage one, he would manage the other. And this really got a lot of traction and a lot of hype because this really was the first time that you saw outsiders, for lack of a better word, coming into the wrestling world. So MTV got a hold of this and they wanted to run with it. They marketed this as the first live wrestling match on cable television, as well as the first live women's professional wrestling match. They Mm. called it the Brawl to End It All. And it was scheduled for. (laughs) Was it July 23rd, 1984? It was a very good year. (laughs) Wow! So Lauper ended up choosing Wendy Richter. And Wendy Richter had been around in WWE for a short time. She'd been, you know, was kind of making her bones, so to speak. However, Lou Albano chose the Fabulous Moolah. Wow.
3: It wasn't the the Fabulous Moolah. She was the the women's champion at the time and became a championship match, I think.
1: She was. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, she was the women's champion in, in perpetuity. Like that was kind of her shtick. Wherever she went and whoever she worked with, she billed herself as the women's wrestling heavyweight champion or whatever. And that was also some of the controversy about her because none of the other women that she worked with, who she also booked into all of these territories, were allowed to beat her yeah, in her. any of the matches.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it. the match was okay. It wasn't the best match in the world. You did see both Cindy Lauper and Lou Albano get involved in it. But it really started that connection between MTV and rock and roll with professional wrestling. Mm. And it, it later went on, I believe Lou Albano showed back up in another video of Cindy Lauper's with uh, the Goonies. He made a short appearance in that one as well. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, so oh. now we're going to talk about one of the subjects I love
2: the Goonies. Uh-oh.
1: He ended up in that videos. Goonies are good enough. Yes. And great song. She also had some other stuff. Cindy Lauper that she became famous for at the time. Time after time. She bop. Right. Those were all famous 80s pops. Yeah. True colors ended up. That was a little bit later on. But yeah, she ended up doing work with all that stuff. The Goonies in that video. I remember specifically going to see the movie. And being upset because I saw the video first that Mm -hmm. Lou Albano wasn't in the movie. Yeah. (laughs) That the character that he portrayed in the video was replaced by the female mother of the two bad guys in that movie. And so it was it was a hard thing for me to understand at the time. Like, well, why did they change? Lou Albano would have been awesome. I would I wanted to see him, you know, going down through the Goonie tunnels and being the guy chasing them throughout all of that treasure hunting goodness that was part of that movie. That would have been awesome. I love the Goonies. It's one of my favorite movies of that era. And I think that it gets it gets a lot of flack for not being a good movie. I know a lot of people hate it. Say that it's a terrible film. I love it, but Cindy Lauper and that video, The Goonies Are Good Enough, really, to my mind, elevated that film. It's a part of the lore of that movie that doesn't happen that often.
2: Well, you're you're absolutely right on that. I mean, Lou Albano brought so much to the table on this. It actually did segue to his first major acting role, though. And I I use that term very loosely because I know it's a movie that's (laughs) that's very near and dear to your heart, George. We gotta talk about Body Slam.
1: Okay. All right. Again, something I finally know something about and can comment on. Yeah. 1986. Yep. Roddy Piper, the Tonga Kid, Lou Albano, and uh, God help us, Tanya Roberts and
2: Dirk Benedict. <laughs> yes. Face Man. Face Man was actually oh, in this movie. <laughs> as. Yeah. Well, the funny yeah. thing is, he was basically playing Vince McMahon. He was,
1: exactly. You this know? was the movie that kind of took the idea of what Vince McMahon had done by bringing wrestlers and rockers together, yeah. and they made a movie out of that idea. It was a terrible movie. I was about to say, it's it wasn't awful. a good movie.
3: But. <laughs> but I've not it, seen it yet.
1: No, well, you don't need to, really. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to help you not see it. <laughs> Although... <laughs> I did see it as one of those of your
2: life. Oh
1: God. It's one of those VHS rentals. So back Mm -hmm. in the day when we were young people and you could go to a store to rent a movie on a VHS tape, this was one of those that I picked out and part of me loved that I picked it. And part of me hated that I picked it (laughs) because I usually only got to pick out one movie a week. And at the time you could rent movies for five days and then you would have to turn them in. So I was stuck with this thing for Five days and nights oh, during God. the summer of it's just terrible. It came out in September of '86. I think I picked it up in '87 that next year, maybe '88. I can't really remember, but it was awful. But I watched it so much that I fell in love with it. And in the movie, Dirk Benedict's character is the manager for Roddy Piper and the Tonga Kid. And he's trying to get them to the championship because in the movie, for some odd reason, wrestling was real. Like they could really win the championship. and matches weren't scripted. So I think whoever was involved with this production must have really wanted to keep kayfabe in place. But he was also losing money as a promoter, which was what his job generally was. He had been a music promoter. And so he combined his one of his acts that he had, which was a rock and roll group with his tag team group and started putting on these rock and wrestling matches. It wasn't at all what I remembered from no. WWF, but it was the <laughs> same kind of idea. Not even close.
2: (laughs) But let's be fair. Had we not had body slam to introduce professional wrestlers into the cinematic world, you never would have had the Princess Bride a year later. And you never, because Andre the Giant. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying
1: to figure out where the hell you were going with that. I was like, bullshit. We (laughs) went (laughs) ahead, Princess Bride. Andre the Giant.
2: Yeah. Andre the Giant got the gig because that was where that relationship started saying, hey, these guys are actually good performers, so they can act. So they brought him in on that. And let us not forget the epic saga that was the 1989 No Holds Barred. Oh, Oh, yeah.
1: Terry, Tiny Lister and Hulk Hogan.
2: Yep. Tony Lister and Hulk Hogan. And hands down, one of the goofiest damn movies ever (laughs) made. Now, Hogan had already done some movie work in, I believe it was Rocky Three. Yes, Rocky III, Thunder, yeah. Thunder yeah. Lips. But this was really his first foyer into being a leading man. So, mm. you know, all of that started with the rock and wrestling format on this. And that even gave birth to a certain cartoon that I absolutely love. So
1: <laughs> I think what you're talking about is going to come up in our next segment based on Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling. Here comes the Gorgeous
0: Ladies of Wrestling. Hi, I'm Tina. I'm into fast men, fast cars, and life in the fast lane. But you know what really revs me up? Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. It's here every week on this station. and Mr. T. Here comes Glo!
2: Those Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling are coming your way today at 10 on WTXX Channel 20. Part of the joy on Saturdays, obviously Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, was watching professional wrestling. But also part of the joy on Saturday mornings was cartoons. And in 1987, they figured out the best way to meld the two. CBS Saturday Morning started a new cartoon called Hulk Hogan's Rockin' Wrestling. That thing ran from... October of 86 to June of 87. So it had a relatively almost a year, but you know, right around that decent run. You can actually still find the episodes on YouTube as well as on a variety of other streaming services. And it is totally, totally, totally worth watching.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I remember distinctly there being scenes where they were all like, Quick, we all got to get into the car. And it was like a clown car pile-in thing. And it was was always the good wrestlers versus the bad wrestlers. So very much like a Super Friends format where you had the Hall of Justice and Lex Luthor's group. And they were always kind of one-upping each other. But it was never anything that was... Like, they weren't trying to kill each other. It wasn't malicious. No, but it was just whatever the situation story was for that particular episode, the good guys and the bad guy wrestlers were always against each other.
3: I remember as as, as a little kid watching the cartoon, it was, it was a cartoon, so hey, I watched it with my bowl of cereal. And if I remember correctly, wasn't Roddy Piper
2: the... Uh, kind of the leader of the bad group. Yes. It was obviously the leader of the good group. It was either Roddy Piper or Iron Sheik. It kind of traded off depending on which episode it was. No, Roddy Piper was
1: absolutely the leader of the bad guys in that
2: cartoon. Iron Sheik
1: was on the bad guy team. Okay,
2: maybe that was it. they had to have Roddy Piper as the bad guy.
1: I specifically remember this because he could actually talk. Yeah. And the Iron Sheet couldn't.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You're not wrong there. (laughs) But here's the thing I love about this. And I I don't know if you guys knew this because I didn't realize it at the time. Do you know who actually did the voice of Hulk Hogan? I assumed it was
1: Hulk Hogan, but you're saying it's not? What's it it? Brad Garrett. Yeah.
2: Really? That was Brad Garrett in one of his First roles doing voiceover work as the Hulkster.
1: Wow. Yeah. That, yeah. Was, it's had so no funny, idea.
2: so funny to go back and listen. To, and actually, WWE still owns the rights. So I think, I'm not sure. I haven't looked to see if they've still got it on Peacock or the network or whatever they call it now. But- uh, If you can find it, it's definitely worth watching.
1: Anything Saturday morning cartoon related, I'm going to take a stab at. I mean, i watched so many crazy cartoons from back in that day. I I definitely remember feeling like, because I was a bit older, this came out 85, 86, 87 era was when this thing was on the air mostly. And I was starting in high school up through like my junior year of high school. So I was a little bit more jaded toward cartoons. And I felt like that this cartoon was more forced than other cartoons. Like it was... It felt like it was more of a corporate creation than an artist creation.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's fair. That's fair. The thing that I loved about it most of all though was the music, because I, and I didn't realize this as a kid, but I went had to go back and look this up. The theme song to Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. Hulk Hogan actually eventually used that for a short time as part of one of his intros, because he had like all two or right. three of them. Right. Yeah. This is basically everyone chanting. That was actually written by Jim Steinman. Huh.
1: Huh. Okay.
2: Is he famous composer guy? I don't know. Well, for those of you who don't know Jim Steinman, think meatloaf. If you heard anything off bad out of hell, that's Jim Steinman. Really? Wow. Yes, sir. So paradise by dashboard light. Yes, sir. Ah, okay. He wrote for him, he wrote for Bonnie Tyler, he wrote for Air Supply. I mean, he's he is synonymous throughout music. But that again, it kind of goes to that whole blending of music and wrestling because eventually that gave way to a little song. Aaron, you may have heard of this one called Real American.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, (laughs) Jesus Christ, we've all heard that damn thing. I am a real
2: American. Yeah. That was Fighting Rick Derringer.
1: Oh, Jesus Christ. That's awful.
2: Yes. And that's Rick Derringer, <laughs> as in Mr. Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo. Really? Yes. Wow. Huh. I mean, it's just, it's kind of it fascinates me to see the way that these things kind of get interwoven between producers and composers and, and people that you've heard of from one world as they meld into another world, specifically the world of wrestling. And actually the 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 theme that Hulk used, the Hulk Hogan's theme, the chanting of Hulk, Bonnie Tyler later rewrote that and used it on one of her albums. Oh
1: jeez. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and George, you said that. And now, real American, it is a terrible song, but you know when you see Hulk Hogan coming out, everybody cheering, uh, the music playing, it's you, you got to admit that it's it's pretty epic to watch.
1: Well, is it epic to watch? Okay, yes so this and kind of no. kind of
3: hits you in the like. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say wrestling. yes and
1: no for me. Now, this may not be for everybody, but for me, because I feel like it was overused, especially in his '90s runs.
3: Okay, And yeah. later
1: on, when he tried to revamp his image after the whole Gawker trial and everything, oh, yeah. and tried to come back, I feel like that the whole patriotic, I'm a real American shtick, I felt like they just ran it into the ground. So For was the it 80s. epic? The first couple of times, yes. After the 5,000th time? No.
2: (laughs) I mean, for the 80s, though, it it was fitting. I could see that. I mean, it definitely was one of those ones that the way that it was used, yeah, it got run into the ground, but it's hard to argue, you know, early to mid 80s you start hearing that downbeat for Real American, you instantly got pumped. And even if you weren't a wrestling fan, even if you really had never watched wrestling before, the minute you heard that downbeat and as it started to come in, you knew something big was coming. So
1: we're talking about the cartoon in this segment, though. Did they ever use that song
2: on the cartoon? They would like do nods to it, but you got to remember, Hogan wasn't using that theme song at that time. It didn't exist when the cartoon was out. So, the so whole it's g- real
1: only relation is because the guy who did it was also the guy who did the theme song for the cartoon?
2: Yes. I mean, it, ah, it kind of blended okay. together on this. It's just the idea of you have two musical giants in Rick Derringer and Jim Steinman, and both of which had a hand in creating the character or the music for the character that is Hulk Hogan, either in the animated version of it or in what actually brought him to the ring. Gotcha. Okay.
3: Now, Barry, you mentioned that it might be on Peacock or the network or whatever they're calling it now. I think that it was actually, it was for a time, but it was removed after
2: Oh, did they take so it Hogan. when they fired him?
3: Yeah, I think so.
2: Okay. I, I haven't looked in so long, to be honest. I'm not sure. I know it's still available on like YouTube mm-hmm. and a variety of other streaming sources, but once Hogan got fired in 2015, I wasn't sure if they still kept it on there or not. I
1: mean, Hogan has definitely been a controversial figure in the last couple of decades, no yeah, question. To and say the stuff least. that he did that happened in decades previous has been tainted because of it. And the rock and wrestling cartoon and some of the his rock and wrestling greatest American kind of shtick thing absolutely has been tainted. So maybe that's why, Aaron, to your earlier question when you said that hits you in the feels, yeah, I don't really want Hulk Hogan touching my feels at all, (laughs) to be honest with you.
0: (laughs) Hey, homeboy. Gather around. Some serious stuff is gonna go down. on the Wrestle War. That it. The Kings of the ring. All come together and do the wild thing. Lex Luger, The think Nature Boy Sting. Yeah, they all be doing that. Wild thing. Yeah, they all be there with something to prove, brimming with intentions to bust the move. It's pay-per-view excitement for THE. For more information, call your cable company. Wow. Wow. Wow.
3: Now, with with uh, with modern music kind of being uh, incorporated into wrestling. There
2: was some wrestling albums, weren't there, Barry? Uh If you want to call them that, yeah. I mean, they That's did. A great exist. way to start a segment,
1: if they you want exist. to call them that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the, the first one was, uh, it was just called The Wrestling Album. It came out in, I believe, 85. And they did have some big hands on this one. Cindy Lauper kind of added her little mix to this, but so did Derringer from our previous statements on this. He was kind of the producer for the album. and Wasn't uh, uh, David Wolf, wasn't he like an assistant? Or executive producer, or something on it. Yeah, he Does was that the EP it? and actually just happened to be Cindy Lauper's boyfriend at the time. So it kind of worked out well that way.
1: <laughs> ah. Because I was going to say, like, I know Derringer because you explained who he was a little bit earlier. And yep. obviously, I know Cindy Lauper. I don't know who the hell David Wolf is.
2: He was an EP for a. I can't remember. I think it was Epic Records. And by EP, you mean executive producer. Executive producer. Excuse me. I want to say it was Epic, but he had already worked with other artists as well as with Cindy. So Derringer was the producer. This guy was the executive producer. So they kind of worked hand in hand. And I believe even Vince McMahon had an an executive producer label on this. So who do they
1: have singing the songs on these albums? The Wrestlers. Oh, bullshit. I can't
2: make this up. I cannot make this up if I tried. Is that where the pies came in? Okay.
1: (laughs) They didn't even let Hulk Hogan do his own voice in the cartoon from what you said earlier. Now they got this dumbass
2: singing on a song, on an album? Oh, not just him, George. Not just him. In fact, the most memorable cut from this album was they had, I think it was about 20 or 25 different wrestlers on stage singing Land of a Thousand Dances by Wilson (laughs) Pickett.
1: You know what? I know why they did this. I know why they did this. What year did this come out? 85. That's why they did this. Because they could. (laughs) No. What was happening in 85 in crazy music history back then? Are you talking about We Are the World? No. What? I said crazy music history. Oh, God. You got to give me more to work with than that. (laughs) There was a lot. Super Bowl Shuffle. Oh, Chicago Bears.
2: Oi, oi! You hurt they me in took the feels. a
1: bunch of football players and put them on a Super Bowl Shuffle rap album, right? We're just here to do the Super It was awful. I guarantee you somebody, either this came first or that came first. I don't know which one did, but- At the
2: same time, yeah. Those
1: two things had to influence each other. What the I hell? I want to say- yeah, I want to say You've that. You've never um, heard of Super Bowl Shuffle, Aaron? Uh, no. Oh. oh, my God. So Do yourself a favor. I, don't, yeah, I'm don't, not going to get into it here. Just go look it up later on. It's crazy, but essentially... The Super Bowl champion Chicago Bears put out a song called "The Super Bowl Shuffle," and it was awful. And it sold billions.
3: I'm going to hate my life after this. I think. Yes, you are.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just be ready for it. Well, in a land of a thousand dances, you had artists such as Classy Freddie Blassie, oh. Jesse the Body Ventura, Oh God, Paul Mr. Wonderful Orndorff, What the fu- <laughs> Vince McMahon mean Gene Okerlund, Bobby, the and the best is there's actually a breakdown in the middle of it with Rowdy Roddy Piper. It's okay. Oh, Piper awesome. Being
1: on the song, I could get behind Piper was hell of a guy on the mic. I could fault him no wrong, but oh. Jesus Christ,
2: v- Freddie Vlassie? Freddie really? Vlassie. And he says, I'm going to wrap you with my cane. You pencil neck geek. Which oh just made God. me happy <laughs> And if that wasn't bad enough Two years later They released the wrestling album 2 This was also <laughs> off of Epic Records But this one had a subtitle on it It was actually called Pile Driver. And it oh, had one Lord. of the strangest covers You've ever seen in your entire life It is Hulk Hogan holding a jackhammer While wearing a metal helmet What? <laughs> like I construction can't make helmet? this up dude I cannot make this up
1: Good lord! So this is our podcast now. We're talking yeah. about batshit crazily wrestling albums from the 1980s. But wait, there's more. Oh, good um. lord! <laughs>
2: WrestleMania, the album came out in night in 93, uh, and that was actually on RSA, uh, RCA and Arista. As if okay. it wasn't bad enough. And this is really kind of where you saw them getting away from the the wrestlers singing quite so much, but they still had them on there, and it was horrible.
1: I just want to take a moment to apologize to our podcast listeners. <laughs> I was not aware of how shitty this was going to be before we started this podcast. <laughs> but this is arguably some of the worst facts I've ever heard in my life when wanting to learn (laughs) about a subject and not because you guys did a bad job. You guys did an awesome job. I just can't believe there was some fucking moron in WWF that said, you know, what would be a good idea after the first two (laughs) shitty albums? Let's
2: do a third. Oh, but we're not done.
1: Oh, good Lord. Come (laughs) on.
2: You got my pies? (laughs) WWF full metal. The album came out. They have to keep
1: tagging it with the album at this point. Yes, to to make people feel better. Yes, this really is music, ladies
2: and gentlemen. The album. Oh God, this uh, this came out in '95. They call this the first compilation album. A compilation of what? (laughs)
1: Compilations usually mean the two bad hits.
2: This is what it was. It was a (laughs) compilation. This is where they actually got smart on this. This is the compilation of all of their intro music. So okay, all of the so wrestlers' ring entrances, int- you mean? Exactly. You know, so that's where they fi- they finally realized this is really what people want to listen to. I don't want to listen to Junkyard Dog singing Grab Them Cakes. <laughs> I don't, don't want to listen to Jimmy Hart singing Eat Your Heart Out Rick Springfield. I don't want to mm. listen to that shit. I want to listen to the intro music. As far as the, the wrestling albums go, that was probably
3: the better one. Mm-hmm. But I do remember in 92, I joined the UF fan club and they, they sent a tape, a cassette tape with like five or six wrestling themes on it
1: so it was kind of like a precursor to this album you mean yeah
3: right
2: ah. now because they wanted to take one more bite at the apple on this <sighs> what
1: <sighs> okay so the segment's
2: over <laughs> oh no 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 oh, no no! no. we got to talk about <laughs> oh jesus christ it was released and it was released in 95 hulk hogan and the wrestling boot band
1: all right fuck you that's made up <laughs> that's not
2: real <laughs> Look at that. That's up. not here's real. Here's the funny thing is this is who this was made up of, okay? This was Hogan, JJ Maguire. I'm not sure who that is. I don't Jimmy know. Hart and Linda Balea, Also his wife. known as his wife. <laughs> it's Oh God, it's horrible. It's It's, it's bad. so bad. It is Jesus so Jesus Christ Gawker, bad. take me away. Oh, oh it's like so a Calgon
1: Bath. I need somebody to sue this son of a bitch.
2: Jesus <laughs> Christ. But this was really where you started to see the beginning of the WWE music. This is where they started to really adjust over and say, okay, well, producing these albums and having these guys sing that are not trained singers is a bad idea. So let's just release the stuff that we know people want to listen to.
1: I mean, I get that it had to happen in order to get us to the point where WWE started creating some legitimate content outside of wrestling. We had WWE films in the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. We have these music things. I I get that it was important first step i just really hate that they broke our fucking ankles
2: with that first step well i mean it did have a did have a lasting moment that's for sure yeah it lasted all right just like a hernia
1: when over 10 000 pounds of beef comes
0: roaring at you it can mean only one thing the Wrestling Album with Hulk Hogan's theme, A Real American, Hillbilly Jim's, Don't go messing with a country boy, don't mess with a country boy. Plus performances by Roddy Piper, Captain Lou, Mean Gene, and The Junkyard Dog. Grab a copy of the Wrestling Album on Epic Records and Tapes, available at your record store.
2: Well, WWE wasn't exactly the only culprit of trying to infuse rock and roll and wrestling to moderate success or to questionable success, I guess is the better way to say it. WCW actually got his hand in this too. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I don't have very much knowledge when it comes to the WWF stuff. I watched the cartoon when I was a kid. I remember the, you know, Hulk Hogan interest theme that I'm not super big fan of, like we talked about earlier. But WCW was my jam. And so I was subjugated to having to listen to their (laughs) foray into copying the WWF music giant.
2: Yeah. That it might have been. It was brutal.
1: So they did a series of rap concert kind of things. They even have music wrestling stables with Master P. Oh, God. I forgot about Master P. Yeah. I mean, they did some crazy stuff with him and some wrestlers. They also even really Formed the Nitro Girls kind of out of that same thought process. I'm not mad at that. I'm well, not mad at I'm that. I'm not either. I mean, I'm just saying if Che ever hears this yeah. podcast, <laughs> hit me up, lady. We got some stuff to talk about. WCW and Eric Bischoff in particular were trying to copy what was in their mind successful on the WWE's front at that point, which got more into the modern entrance music themes, right. I would say.
2: Yeah. And they were
1: trying to do their own thing, but they were trying to do it edgy. And let's bring rappers into the game to bring a whole new demographic because really Eric Bischoff's whole goal with anything he does is let's put more eyes on our product so we can sell more advertising. That's his whole thing. Every time.
2: Controversy creates cash.
1: Exactly. Now, the music side of it was controversial, Mm -hmm. not in a way that generated cash, though. They even were. I remember there was some discussions on air that ended up not coming to anything where they hinted that they were going to put on full WCW concerts.
2: Yes. I remember when they were promoting that and they never really came to fruition. No, they had concerts, but it was almost like cross promotional instead of something. It was kind of back to the body slam movie a little bit very much so very much so and actually ECW even tried to do something similar they released an album and to mix success and where WCW was going more on the rap and R&B element of it ECW was going more metal and you know hardcore kind of sound that that fit more with their audience right it did it did and you know again people bought that album hoping to hear the entrance songs because that's kind of ECW kind of skated around the rules a little bit there as far as paying royalties (laughs) for what they used So,
1: no, Paulie dangerously is never known for not paying for something. I is have he? No idea what you're talking about, <laughs> sir. No
2: clue whatsoever. But. It was moderate success. But there's two, if we're going to talk about the legacy of, of rock and wrestling, there's two particular people that or two groups, I should say, that we have to talk about. The first one is a guy by the name of Jim Johnstone. Okay. Now, Jim Johnston was the music producer for WWE starting back in, gosh, it's a while back, but he started with a WWE, the music volume three. Oh, okay. So that's really where he started. And he was actually the composer for the majority of the intro songs that you heard throughout the 2000s. If you heard an entrance song by pretty much anybody, Johnston either created it himself or edited it to make it work for an intro song. Hmm. And they kept him around for... 32 years. Wow. That's, That's a long how, run with that company. Wow. Well, and the funny thing is you can tell if you listen to the intro songs, the way that they were put together and how they sounded, he's the guy that created the the, the breaking glass for Steve Austin. Mm. He's one of the ones that gave, you know, the X, life to The Undertaker's music. You know, all of those just iconic, iconic intro songs were done by Jim Johnson. And after 32 years, they released him and they replaced him with a group called CFO Dollar Sign. No, <laughs> okay. I, I I can't make this stuff up, dude. In 2017, they released him. A CFO Dollar Sign was made up of two guys, John Paul Alicastro and Michael Conrad, Laurie. They took over writing the intro song from... 2017 to 2020. Okay, but that's in the era where you started to see a lot more hardcore kind of sound. the The biggest one that most people make synonymous was Shinsuke Nakamura's. That was mm. their baby. They had the 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 redoing of Triple H's music. All of the 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 newer stuff that you heard was CFO dollar sign.
3: Let's not forget that a lot of a lot of the wrestlers would have music licensed to them. I know. Bridge did uh, did a song for Edge. So did Rob Zombie.
2: Well, yeah, you had Rob Zombie. You had uh, oh gosh, I just went blank. Motorhead, Motorhead, and what is the name of the 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 Fred Durst? Oh, Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit. The the Chocolate Starfish. (laughs) Kid Rock. I mean, Uh, you had a lot of big names that were producing songs that were used by wrestlers, but they weren't necessarily wrote for them.
1: Well, but that kind of relates to the podcast theme a little bit this time. And I don't mean a bad pun with the word theme, but when (laughs) we're talking about rocking and wrestling, we're talking about how the music industry partnered with wrestling in different ways. Now, it's not always driven by the wrestlers. Oftentimes, it's driven by the music industry. And sometimes just a marriage happens that is beautiful. To this day, in the modern music and wrestling era, one of the most successful combinations has got to be Living Color and CM Punk. Oh, hands the cult down. Cult personality.
2: Hands down. That,
1: to this day, makes people's skin get goosebumps when they hear it because, A, CM Punk is synonymous with doing mic drop promos and really giving tremendous matches, as well as just that music that was born out of... A different era being rebranded and brought back into the modern era. It's It's clobbering time. Right. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, and, it's you, and you got to see a lot of that with different performers when you had a perfect meld, a perfect mesh. You know, the, the difference was that WWE didn't want to pay for rights. They figured, why oh, would we pay gonna for now we're talking about
1: lawsuits. No well,
2: that's where it kind of got into because they didn't want to pay for rights for the songs they were using. So what they would do is do one of three things. They would either A, have somebody produce something that sounded very similar to another Mm. artist. B, have them do something in-house where they owned all the rights for it, which also meant that if that wrestler happened to go to another organization, they couldn't use that song anymore. Right, yeah. Or C, they just out and out steal it. So, you know, there was multiple different lawsuits across on this. And and, and I keep saying WWE, but there were other ones. ECW notably had a big lawsuit that was against them from BMI and Sony about the rights for the songs that they used. But those were the big heavy hitters on them. It's an interesting look back
1: at a history that most people don't associate with wrestling. People, yes, they know that there are entrance themes and they know that people have music involved with their particular character, but nobody thinks about how influential music has been on the professional wrestling business from an early stage. The fact that you had the Hulk Hogan rock and wrestling cartoon, you had those god-awful wrestling albums (laughs) that (laughs) they put out, that you had wrestling singing songs when it was a time and an era when football players and everybody else were doing that same kind of thing. It, It goes to the fact that wrestling is a part of the American zeitgeist in almost every form. It is part of entertainment. It's part of sports and it's part of music. Yeah. It has been a wild ride, not just for the wrestlers in the music industry, but for us in this podcast. And this is this is a little bit of a sad note when I tease our next episode because it's the final episode of yeah. season one. I think we're going out with the right title though. We're gonna talk all about the greatest tag team of the era, the Road Warriors. If
2: you're going to go out, go out with a bang. Yeah,
1: we talked about them earlier in the season as being the number one top tag team in our tag team top 10 list. This time, we're going to go deep into the history, the origins of those two great wrestlers, the people associated with them, the feuds that they had throughout the era it is going to be a blast and i look forward to sharing that with our audience as well as you two fine gentlemen and thank you guys so much for what we have done this season with this podcast and i hope that we get to continue doing this i hope that it's successful and finds an audience so that we keep to get doing it further on but i just i'm looking forward to this final episode it's a little sad that it's the last one in this season but guys thank you so much Aaron. Thank you so much for being here.
3: Appreciate it, man. Looking forward to next episode.
2: Barry, thank you again for being here. My pleasure, guys. It has been an honor and a privilege to sit there and argue with you two about the validity of Grab Dim Cakes. That's all I've got to say. And fourth
1: listener, it is you. We appreciate most of all, and we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.
2: Before the
0: days of internet and in YouTube, we was after brewing Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude. Our theme
2: song is courtesy of nerdcore hip-hop artist Beefy. Explore his
1: work at beefiness.com. Turnbuckles and Territories is a production of Gen X Grown Up and a member of the Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Turnbuckles and
0: Territories, 1980.